All right, well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that we get to uh, gather together in the, you know, not ideal weather, but in a dry and, you know, air-conditioned and warmed-up place and get to study God's Word together. So if you have a Bible, find Revelation chapter 22. We're going to the very end of the Bible this morning. Revelation chapter 22. If you've hit your concordance, you have gone too far. Or your maps. Revelation 22. As you're, as you're finding that, I'm just going to let you know, th- this morning um, we're kind of making a shift in the series that we've been working on with rethinking the church. We've been thinking about ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. What does the scripture have to say to us? What does church history have to say to us about who the people of God are and what do the people of God do? We've studied uh, the marks of the church, the attributes of the church, what makes up a church, who makes up a church, its structure, its membership, its leaders, how it's maintained through biblical discipline. And today, we're making a shift from what the church is to what the church does. So now that we have this foundation of what the church is, we can start to think about what are the regular rhythms of the body of Christ? So, So what does it mean, what does it look like to live day-to-day as the people of God? What are the rhythms of life in this new family? So we're going to see over the next three weeks that God has given his church specific tasks to specific audiences. So today we're going to talk about worship. Worship is the task of God, of of the church to God, right? Worship is the task of the church to God. In the next two weeks, We'll see uh, discipleship and evangelism, the task of the church to itself, that we want to grow in Christ-likeness. And we'll also see the, uh, the, the task of missions, which is the task of the church to the world. So what, is the church ought, what, what, what ought the church be doing to, to God, to itself, and to the world? So today we're going to talk about worship. What is biblical worship? We use that word all the time, but what does it mean? Is it a genre of music? Is it just a time in the church service when we usually sing, but now kind of hum and move along? It's not less than those things, but it is a lot more, right? So, so worship, the word worship, comes from the old English phrase, worth-sip, right? Which literally just means worth-ship. Something is worthy. So when we worship something, We are ascribing worth to it. We are saying that this matters. This is important. This is weighty. In the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word, I won't say it for you uh, because I would butcher it, but but the Hebrew word for worship describes weightiness of a thing. It's, It's mass. It's importance. And all throughout church history, we've seen that worship means to ascribe worth to something, that something is important, that it's weighty. So when we worship something, we are saying that that thing is ultimate. It is supreme. It is the thing that deserves my uh, greatest affection. But we, almost, we, we also must understand that worship is not initiated by you and me. So, so worship is not something that you and I start. Worship is always a response So we worship something that has done something to us or for us or has shown us something, and our worship is our response to that. So if you're thinking about worship, you can think about these two words, 
revelation and response. Revelation and response. We respond to what has been revealed with worship. We worship these things in response to what they do. So when a people worships a sports team, for example, not that that would land here at all, when they worship a sports team, it's because they have found pleasure or superiority in their team, in their winning, in their stature, in their success, in their heritage, in their tradition, in whatever, in something within that team, they have seen something that causes them to respond in worship. You can say it's commitment or whatever, but it's worship. It's ascribing worth and value to that thing over other things. If someone worships their own appearance, it's partly because they've fallen in love with the kind of things that beautiful people in the eyes of the world can get. So maybe it might be that their appearance might get them special treatment. Or they might be seen as attractive by others. And they like the, the pleasure and the affirmation and the encouragement that comes from that. So they will worship their own selves, their own appearance. So when we worship something, what we're doing is we're placing hope in that thing. We're pledging our allegiance to that person or that team or that idea. We're reserving our greatest affection for this thing other than, rather than other things. So whatever we worship, if I asked you, what do you worship? I'm asking you, what is ultimate in your life? What do you find your affection gravitating towards more than anything else? So today, I want us to see how the church ought to worship. The glory of God is the, the vision of the church. It should be what the church sees. So when the, the church lives and breathes and moves as the family of God, it should be seeing and having in its field of vision the glory of God. And we'll look primarily today at the ways the church worships together, but we'll also see that worship is something that colors every aspect of life. So we'll spend the bulk of our time today talking about what does a gathered family of faith do to worship the Lord? And we'll just look at what is really what I want you to see is that the things that we do usually at 1045 on Sunday mornings is not random. That there's a purpose behind all of the things that we do. There's a, a biblical purpose and a, a sanctifying purpose and a glorifying purpose for us to worship the Lord in these specific ways. But we need to start more broadly, more cosmically, and that's why you should be at Revelation chapter 22. So if you're taking notes this morning, your, your first point today is, is this, worship as the end of the church. We need to see worship as the end of the church. Now I'm not using end as in like the finale or the, after this it's over. I'm using that word end as in the word purpose. So what is the end for which you were created? To worship God and enjoy Him forever. Right? So let's read Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 1. This is the Apostle John writing, and he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Let's pray. Father, we see this depiction of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 22. And I pray, if if we have eyes to see, we would be stunned to see the good news, the, the glory that awaits us when we see you face to face. When there will be no more need for light because the glory of God will shine throughout all creation that there will be no more pain or sorrow, that the the tree of life no longer yields just one fruit, but 12 kinds of fruit, that there's this fulfillment of all things good and beautiful and true. And the new heavens and the new earth are filled with worshipers who are giving glory to their God, who reign with Christ over creation. So Lord, in the meantime, help us to see the importance of biblical worship Help us to rehearse these things as the people of God, the church, and help us as we scatter day in and day out to live our lives as living sacrifices, giving us uh, or giving of ourselves as spiritual worship to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully you see in this text that the the end of the world, the, the eternal state of all things will be God's people in God's place ruling and reigning with Christ, and in doing so, they are worshiping Him. They're giving glory to Him. They're honoring Him. They're praising Him. They are worshipers. But that's not happening now, right? That's that's the end. That's the, the purpose of the people of God. That's the purpose of God's story throughout all of history and creation. But that's not happening now. Now, we'll get into missions and evangelism in a couple of weeks in another sermon, but for now, we need to see what John Piper said decades ago that has changed a lot of people's lives, this one sentence. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. There are people groups all around the world who are not honoring and glorifying their creator, who are not worshiping him in spirit and truth because they don't know him. And so the task of missions is to go to those who have never heard and to reveal to them the glory of God in Christ through the gospel so that they might respond and worship, so that they might do what they were created to do. Missions is the means by which the church gains worshipers. It's how the worship of God increases in the world. It's that that text in Romans 10, how will they believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how will they hear of Him unless somebody preaches to them? And how will somebody preach to them unless they're sent? And how are they sent unless we send them? How beautiful the feet are those who bring good news. This is 
Paul telling us the way that worship increases in the world is through the faithfulness of the church. But the point I want to make here is not missions. We'll get to that in another sermon. The point I want to make here is that you and I were created to worship. We were made to give glory and honor and praise to our Creator. If God has eternally existed, think about this. He has eternally existed before time and space in a glory-giving Godhead in the Father, Son, and the Spirit where the Father is constantly, eternally lavishing His love and praise on His Son. And the Son is eternally and constantly lavishing His love and His praise to His Father. And the Spirit is wrapped up in the love of the Father and the Son. Then if we are made in God's image, we were made to do the same. And so that's why we see in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve in the garden walking with God in the cool of the day. This unmitigated, unbroken fellowship between God and man. And yet the fall happens. Adam and Eve were created to worship God and to extend the image of God throughout all creation. To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion. Sounds like Revelation 22, that the earth will be full of worshipers of God who will reign on the earth and be worshiping Him. But instead of loving and glorifying God, Adam and Eve bent in on themselves and began to view themselves as the object worthy of their worship, not God. Adam and Eve responded to what they could do for themselves rather than what God had done for them. So now we, the inheritors of their guilt and sin, are born in iniquity, David says. And we worship self rather than God. So we were made to worship. And we still do. We just worship the wrong thing. Harold Best said one time that you don't start or stop worship, you aim it. You're constantly worshiping. You just aim it in the direction that you want it to go. So we worship self rather than God. Or we create for ourselves new gods to worship. This is the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32, right? We heard heard this in the spring. Moses goes on Mount Sinai, hears the word of the Lord, receives the Ten Commandments, the law from God. Aaron and the priests are looking at Israel and they're going, hey, we need to make some gods to worship because that's what we've been doing for the last 400 years in Egypt, worshiping idols. And so they created the golden calf and started to worship and bow down to this false god. And not all false gods have to be images carved by gold or stone or wood. It could be, well, a sports team or personal appearance, or safety, or comfort, or money, or control, or power, or pleasure. We can make anything into an idol. John Calvin once said that our hearts, because of our sin, are like factories that constantly create new idols for us to worship. Our hearts are like idol factories. But Christ, in the gospel, has made a way for us to become unbent That He's made a way for us to worship God rather than ourselves or other things because He shows us in His life what does it look like to worship God with everything that we have. When we look at Jesus, we see what we were created to do. Yes, we see God in the flesh. We see the, the King of kings. We see the Son of David. We see the promised Messiah. We see all of those things. But we also see a man made in God's image, living out his life 
by fulfilling God's command to worship him, to honor him, to glorify him. So in Christ, when you and I repent of our sins and turn to him by faith, we receive new hearts that are able to be recalibrated away from ourselves and our idols and towards the Lord. We receive a Holy Spirit who begins to sanctify us and make us more and more like our King Jesus. And the Great Commission is then a summons for us to go and proclaim the glory of God so that He might receive the worship that is due His name. You think about the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And it's, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, actually, let's just turn there. John chapter 4. We won't spend a ton of time here, but John chapter 4, starting in verse 16. So as you're finding John 4, 16, uh, know that Jesus is walking uh, and he decides and tells his disciples, we need to go through Samaria. And Samaria is a people group hated by the Jews because they have, they have spurned the covenants of God. They've spurned the law. They, they are traitors to the kingdom. They, they hate the Samarians. And uh, Jesus says, no, we have to go through there. So he's, he's sitting at a well in John chapter 4, and in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, a woman comes to draw water. Now, the only reason why a person would go in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day, to draw water is because they didn't want to see anybody else. And what we'll see very clearly is this woman has a past and a story that she doesn't want anybody to bring up. And Jesus begins to talk to her about living water, eternal water, that if, if you drink the water that I offer you, you will never thirst again. And this woman, she hears, but she doesn't understand. She says, well, I want that water so that I don't have to come back to this well. It'd be nice to have some living water. So starting in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Oh, snap. Go call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Well, yeah, you're right. You've had five, and the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband. That's right. She's like, that's why I come to the well right now, so I don't have to think about this and talk about this, right? This woman lives with shame, and, and we don't know why she's had five husbands. The text doesn't tell us. But regardless, she is exposed. And she does something weird, but not really weird, right? She changes the subject. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on these mountains. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she's going, okay, uh, I don't want to talk about my marriages and my personal life, so let's talk about like the worship of the Samaritans and the Jews. <laughs> You're a prophet. This is something that you'll want to talk about. Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is where it's important. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and the truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
So we, as the people of God, are called here in John chapter 4 to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth. So we worship the Father through the Spirit. It's only by the Spirit of God that you and I can rightly worship God. Our worship is broken and brittle and dirty and tainted and unrighteous and unclean and with poor intentions and with poor execution. It will never reach the throne room of heaven. But the Spirit is able to redeem our broken worship and bring it to His altar for Him to receive. So we worship in spirit, but we also worship in truth. And you've heard me say this before. This is a a Jen Wilkin quote. I'll gladly give this to her and not me. Uh, The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So you cannot worship something or someone that you don't know. So you worship through the Spirit, but you also worship through the truth. And how do we know God? Well, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he says later in in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So you see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved in the worship of someone who wants to worship God. Our lives then are a response to the wonder of God's revelation through Christ and His illuminating work through the Holy Spirit. So we receive Christ, we receive His Spirit, and we are now able to worship. That's the end of the church. Now, what does this look like? So gathered worship as the church. If you're taking notes, the second point would be gathered worship as the church. So we exist now as worshipers. We worship God rather than self, rather than other things. We ascribe worth to God alone in a world giving away its praises to everything and everyone else. So how does the Bible tell us to worship? What are some of the things that we ought to do when we gather together to worship? Well, first of all, we need to say, should we gather together to worship? And the answer is a resounding yes. Listen to David Mathis. He writes a a book on the spiritual disciplines, and he says, corporate worship is the single most important means of grace and our greatest weapon in the fight for joy. Because like no other means, corporate worship combines these three principles of God's ongoing grace. His word, prayer, and fellowship. So in the corporate worship service, When we gather together at 1045 as the people of God in that specific room, we hear the word, we speak to God in prayer, and we enjoy the fellowship of the saints. So what do we do? Well, in Acts 2.42, it says that they, that is the, the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's Acts 2.42. So we see here, prayer. We speak to God. We pray to Him. We lift up our voices and petition the Lord of glory as his sons and daughters, confident that he hears us. And I don't know about you, students, but you may wonder like, man, how can I grow in my prayer life? How can I pray more effectively or more faithfully? And and there are many, many things that you can do, but one of them that we don't need to miss is that you can listen to the prayers of those who are farther along their journey towards Christ than you. I have learned so much about what it means to pray or what it looks like to pray just by listening to brothers and sisters who have prayed longer than I've been alive. So we pray. 
Next is fellowship. In corporate worship, there's an aspect of gathering together as the family of God. We get to see the ones that we love. Like my wife um, is, we're about two weeks out from having a baby. So she's been on lockdown uh, in the coronavirus time and hasn't seen a lot of people. And so we had like a little drive-through baby shower for her yesterday. And she came back beaming. And one of the first things she said was, it was so good to see everyone. It was so good to just see all of these people that I love and that I know love me. And, and that should be the, the heartbeat behind the fellowship with God's people. We get to gather every week, all of us together, to worship Jesus, but to enjoy one another. That's part of our worship. We get to meet new members and greet and welcome those around us before, during, and after the service. So if we're intentional... The rhythm of corporate worship can serve to deepen the fellowship and the relationships of God's people. So prayer, fellowship. Next is preaching. The teaching of the apostles in Acts 2.42 was what the people of God gathered around. And that teaching is now bound up for us in Scripture. So we gather as the people of God of the chief shepherd. We are the flock of Christ to every Sunday enjoy a good meal. We get to be fed from an under-shepherd. We get to hear the preaching of God's Word. Now, in 1 Timothy 4, this is explained not just as preaching, but as the reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. So we read the Word together. We hear it explained to us, and then it's applied to us so that we might live in light of the truth of God's Word. We hear and listen and respond to biblical preaching. And by God's grace, it should change us. So when we gather in a little while, for example, Brother Al will explain to us a section of Scripture for Romans chapter 14. That is not a lecture. That is not primarily for information acquisition, right? You going in there to listen to Al preach is not, the, the goal of that is not to be able to say at the end of it, this is what Romans 14 verses 1 through 5 says. The purpose is that you would meet Christ there in the text of Scripture, and that you might be changed by His Word. We learn the Word together. And then the Lord's Supper. It is not surprising to me that we have gone without the Lord's Supper for many months now, and perhaps a byproduct, not just of the Lord's Supper, but a lot of things, is that there is within the people of God, not just this isn't just like a Lakeview thing, this is a Church of Jesus Christ thing, there is a certain level of apathy and spiritual malnourishment that exists in the life of the church right now. Well, should we be surprised? Should we be surprised if we've gone as though we are surviving and starving for the last couple of months without the Lord's Supper, for many churches without baptism, without corporate worship through singing, without meeting together in person? Why wouldn't we be surprised? That a family who has not eaten together, who has not taken this Lord's Supper together, who has not washed in the water of the Word together, that they feel weak. We take the Lord's Supper. We'll speak more about this in a couple of weeks, get its own week. But the Lord's Supper is the family meal of the people of God. It is an ordinance given specifically by Jesus where we receive His sanctifying grace. And we remember when we take the bread and the cup, his triumph over sin and death and the grave. 
What else do we do in church services? It's not just Acts 2.42. It's not just prayer, fellowship, teaching, Lord's Supper. It's also baptism and testimony. When we gather together as God's people, we hear regularly through testimony and we see through baptism how God is bringing the dead to life. We witness a baptism, we're witnessing someone confess that they were dead and now that they are alive. And we as the people of God, again, we'll spend more time on this specifically on baptism, but we as the people of God, when we see someone as a candidate for baptism, our presence there is an affirmation to the person in the water, we have seen it too. When that person's standing in the water saying, I'm I'm professing to you that God has made me alive by the power of Christ and his gospel, we in the seats by our presence are responding in affirmation saying, we've seen it. We've seen it, you're right. We affirm it. It's an ordinance of the church. It's the stories that we hear of brothers and sisters. When we hear their stories, we're edified, we're encouraged, we're challenged, we're convicted, and we're drawn up to worship. Because God is still saving sinners like us. We also give. We give. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul calls on the church in Corinth on the first day of the week to set aside money for the work of ministry. We see it also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul tells Timothy that the church should be able to support their pastors financially since they're giving their lives on behalf of their spiritual well being. So we give. We give of our money, we give in other ways. And last but not least, we are called to sing. We sing. Now, obviously, in all the other aspects of corporate worship, we are participating. So we participate in giving. We participate in testimonies. We participate in prayer. We listen. We participate through the preaching. But when we think about participating in worship, this is probably what we think about first, is singing. It's also something that we've gone without in many ways for the last few months. And we should feel that. We should feel as though our worship is somehow hamstrung. We should feel the the tension of not being able to do what we know to be right and good. And students, that's not just because of coronavirus. All of our worship, all of our life as the people of God is marked by this tension and this frustration and this I want my life and my worship and my faithfulness to be here, but but I am unable in my own sin and, and weakness and frailty to do that on my own. So I have to live my life dependent on Jesus. It's no less true in our singing. We see singing throughout Scripture. The Psalms are known as the hymn book of Israel. And today we have a rich heritage of songs to sing to the Lord. And I'm less concerned, and we should be less concerned with musical style than we are with content. We should be less concerned with production value and more concerned with theological value. So we could be singing something and it sounds wonderful and beautiful and amazing in its heresy. Or we could just be a small group humming together and it's out of key and out of tune, but it's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. One of these things will stir up the affections of our hearts to God. One of these things will stir up the affections of our hearts to something or someone else. So are the songs that we sing accurate? Are they honoring to the Lord? Listen to Colossians 3.16. Paul writes to the Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the question is, uh, do we sing songs that elicit thankfulness in our hearts to God? The songs that we sing should resound with Scripture. They should teach us true things about who God is. They should fill our hearts with gratefulness to Him and praise Jesus. I think we do this really, really well. Uh, Adam Trailer is a watchdog on this point right here. Is what we sing right? Is what we sing true? Is what we sing good? So these are all the things that we do as the people of God. We gather together to hear solid, faithful, biblical preaching. We pray to one another. We enjoy fellowship. We, we sing. We give. We hear testimonies. We receive the supper. All the things that we do for that hour and 15 minutes is not arbitrary. It's not random. It's very intentional. And if we have eyes to see, we will start to notice the value that it has for us. Well, very quickly as I land the plane, we got one more point. So we've talked about worship being the end of the church. This is the purpose of the church. And we've seen over the last couple of minutes, what does that look like when we're gathered together? But finally, I want us to see the scattered worship as the church. Scattered worship as the church. We need to be reminded that all of our worship does not stop when the service on Sunday is over. So Romans chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it very quickly. Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All our lives, Paul says, are to be given as a living sacrifice to the Lord. This is spiritual worship. So what does that mean? It means for you and for me that whatever you have before you, on Tuesday afternoon or on Thursday morning or on Saturday night, school or work or family time or hobbies or relaxation or study or fellowship or rest or party or whatever it is, it is an opportunity for God to be praised. That there is no aspect of your life that is somehow compartmentalized away from the worship of God. Instead, everything is under the banner of, there is no one like the Lord. I worship Him and Him alone. So what Paul says to the Philippians is good for us to hear as well. This is from Philippians chapter 4. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things or set your mind on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So students, let's make it our aim to do everything that we do with a sense of purpose. That everything that we've been given by God is an opportunity for us to worship and glorify our God and Savior. That we can live our lives filled with the Spirit as the people of God as we head into a corporate worship service here in just a few minutes. And then scatter into the community as lights in the darkness, making much of the King of Kings in whatever we say and do. This is the privilege and the responsibility of being an ambassador of the kingdom. 
It's the task that we have to God to worship him in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of worship. You are the creator. You're holy, righteous in all of your ways. Your majesty is high and exalted. There is no one like you. You are shrouded in glory, in unapproachable light, and yet you have made yourself known to us. Those who have been created in your image but have spurned your love and grace and run after created things rather than the creator, God, you have made a way for us to enjoy right relationship with you again. You offer forgiveness of sins. You offer adoption into your family. You offer uh, your Holy Spirit to take up residence in our own hearts and lives. And so we respond to your revelation with praise. We honor you. We glorify you. We worship you. We exalt you. We surrender our lives to you and say, whatever it is that you've put before us, we want to use it as an opportunity to make much of you. So God, I pray that in the conversations that we'll have for just the next few minutes, we would be drawn up to worship, that we would start to think really deeply about how it is that we can live our lives in a way that gives you honor and glory, that we would see that opportunities in our life that are not being used to worship the Lord should be reevaluated and perhaps put to death, that we would see that when we sin, these are opportunities that we have spurned to give you glory. That when we don't resist temptation, we're saying that you are not supreme, you are not ultimate, that this other thing is. So God, help us to see how all-encompassing the worship of our God really is for us. We pray that we might see that as the great joy of our life to give you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.